Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness podcast series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness webcast series held on January 31, 2018, focusing on the new U.S.-based erosion and anti-abuse tax, or BEAT. The panelists for the webcast were Ken Kuykendall, PwC's Tax Services Leader, Quinn Nguyen, a PwC tax principal focusing on international tax issues, Tom Quinn, a PwC tax partner also focusing on international tax issues, and Paige Hill, a PwC tax principal and leader of our PwC transfer pricing practice in the United States. This podcast excerpt consists of a discussion among the panelists on various gray areas relating to the beat, including cost of goods and service payments, partnerships, and cost-sharing arrangements. What we want to do is pivot into some areas that aren't clear from a standpoint of the statute or the types of questions we're getting from clients and maybe dig into those. So Paige, I'm going to turn to you to sort of lead us through that. Sure. Um, so, so we'll come to each of these in a little bit more detail. Um, and Tom just touched on the, uh, the um, cost of goods treatment. Um, I think that's something people are really thinking about a lot. Um, the characterization of payments, you know, aligns with that. Um, you know, particularly, I think, uh, you know, we're seeing, and, and I'll, I'll say, um, you know, from a transfer pricing standpoint, you know, particularly for inbound companies, we often were looking at a very bottom line results oriented result and evaluating whether the level of income in the U.S. was correct. And, you know, we often had a blend of payments. We had some services payments, maybe some royalties, maybe some product sales. Um, and, and we weren't um, always looking um, in detail at those, but really looking at was the net impact an acceptable level of income for taxation in the U.S. Um, I do think that now, you know, we really need to go back to, to looking at this much more transactionally because, you know, the nature of the payments can be really, really important in terms of, you know, looking at the beat calculation and all the consequent issues in the rest of the tax provisions. So, um, looking at a results-oriented um, measure from a transfer pricing perspective um, is not going to be, you know, helpful to our clients to look at it in that way. Um, so, you know, I think we really need to think about that. And we're going to talk about services payments, and that's really been an area of, of heavy debate recently. Um, and then there's also this point that Quinn and I were chatting about beforehand on dis- distinction between the allowed and allowable deduction. Uh, when looking at the base erosion percentage, um, it, uh, it allows you to include the allowable deduction. And there's some question of whether that's the amount that you actually deducted or what you could have deducted, <laughs> depending on, you know, accounting treatments. So um, I don't know, you know, kind of where you, your thinking is on that, but I think that it's the only place that, it's, that they use that term. And so, um, you know, I think people are trying to kind of work through if that was intentional or what that may mean. Yep. And again, it's going back to the point of, you know, the fact that w- whether you're an applicable taxpayer or not, to the extent you hit the 3 or the 2% base erosion percentage, has a lot of meaning now for, for companies. And so as that slide indicates, the gray areas are where they're assessing, you know, c- things that weren't cogs before, maybe I should pay more attention to it. Things that I might have been characterizing as a service, well, maybe it was really a sale of software. Like, things that maybe didn't matter as much now, potentially matter in terms of both the form and the character of your payments. Absolutely. Um, so to come to the services cost method, um, you know, what, what, it's, what the law says is you need to be eligible um, to apply the services cost method in order to exclude those payments um, from your beat base. And, you know, there are certain elements if you look into the regulations that um, need to be met. And the first is that um, it could be a specified cover serv- covered service under the RevProc, um, which is sort of the good list as, as, as many companies uh, rely on it. 
Um, the other way is if you can demonstrate that the median arm's length markup on the services is less than 7%, in which case you can elect into the services cost method. Um, there's also specific types of activities that cannot qualify for the services cost method, um, R&D, engineering, manufacturing, and so forth. And the interesting um, provision uh, in the rules under B say that it's actually without regard to the service contributing to the fundamental risk of your business, which was an area that many companies often were captured where they might have had a low margin service, but um, you know, perhaps it was kind of part of their core business and they were just a low margin service. And so um, here it says you don't have to look at that, um, whether it does contribute to that. So you know, from a, a broad spectrum, you know, you'd say, wow, there's probably a lot of things that maybe I can look at. And, I don't have to think about the fundamental business part, and if I know that you know the medians are less than seven percent, which often they are, and, and a lot of types of services, and I'm not on the excluded list, maybe I can opt into the services cost method. Um, you know, but the extent that the debate is, if I am applying a markup, um, am I now automatically subject to <laughs> including this in B because I've applied a markup? And uh, you know, obviously, um, to the extent. You know, you're, you're dealing with a, a foreign party who has transfer pricing rules that require markup because we're one of the few um, countries that has this sort of exception. Uh, you know, they may not be satisfied with zero markup. And so if you're charging the markup, you know, I think there was a view for a time that um, only the markup element might be subject to beat. But I, I think that's been really open to debate right now. So if you're, I'm interested in your exception that you're talking about around the not contribute significantly to the fundamental risks of the business, that that seems to be an opportunity for our clients that might be providing call center services to third parties or providing back office accounting, accounts payable, accounts receivable type services in low cost locations. They could still contract with a U.S. client, make payments to an offshore service center in the Philippines or India and still perhaps fall within this exception. Right, because I think we don't have to look at whether that's sort of core to their business. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think interestingly, we, we're seeing as we work through this with companies that there are a lot of types of um, transactions that, you know, people would not have thought would have ended up on a bad list, so to speak, right? Because, um, you know, they were a lot of companies that might do central contracting in the U.S. and just provide service payments to their foreign affiliates. Um, and so now they're getting captured by this versus companies that had contracting in the local territories. So there's a lot of things I don't think were um, sort of immediately obvious in terms of what was being captured when we worked through the rules. Yeah, and we're going to have to go through lightning round here to get through the last, uh, last few right. of these characterization issues, okay? <laughs> Sorry. Um, uh, payment, uh, treatment of cost of goods, again, is excluded. I think if we go to the next slide, and, and Tom did mention this, um, looking at accounting methods and looking at whether or not um, you know, the very specific rules about what qualifies as cost of goods, um, we need to follow those. And so, you know, here we've actually been spending a lot of time between transfer pricing and accounting methods thinking through, um, you know, what types of royalties would be deemed to be a cost of good versus a payment that could be subject to beat. And so I'd encourage everyone to go back to the fundamentals under the tax accounting rules. Things like royalties, procurement service fees, elements like that. Absolutely. Never thought I would hear tax people talking about, uh, international tax people talking about UNICAP. i got to be honest with you. So. <laughs> All the rules have changed. Yeah. LIFO is e next. Everything's upside down. Yeah, LIFO is next. Huh? I'm not kidding. Um, all right, so we've got a couple of partnership examples here. Quinn, I think we're going to have you go through um, some of the gray areas that relates to partnerships, and then we can 
Sure, I think uh, in this one, just to recall back to the basics of the beat, again, it talks about when you have a payment made by an applicable taxpayer, again, a corporation, a foreign or U.S., um, uh, to a related foreign party. And so the first um, part of this is trying to illustrate when you have a U.S. corporate taxpayer making a payment to a U.S. partnership, is that payment a uh, base eroding payment because the partners of that domestic partnership happen to be foreign companies? And it seems unclear whether you would uh, say that's a U.S. person because technically a partnership could be a U.S. person and uh, that payment shouldn't be a bad deductible payment, for example. And so I think it leaves open an area as to, you know, is this a, a permissible payment? And if it is, you know, it can open up some, some opportunities for people to think about mitigating their exposure to the beat. Um, on the other side, we have an illustration again of the rules for a payment that's made by a domestic partnership. So the U.S. partnership is now making a payment um, to a domestic, uh, to a CFC, but the U.S. partnership, instead of having foreign partners, now has U.S. corporate partners. So again, an applicable taxpayer could be a U.S. corporate partner, but a partnership is technically not an applicable taxpayer. And so do you count that as a bad base eroding payment uh, in proportion to each of the two partners? And I think the, the rules surrounding partnerships um, as it applies to the beat is unclear. And um, you know, hopefully, again, this might be a space where Treasury and the IRS will be issuing guidance. Because until then, I think people are left to glean what they can from the conference reports and the legislative history um, and taking a look at the textual sort of reading of the statute itself. It kind of leaves itself open in, in how partnerships are dealt with in the beat. Um. Any other open issues, guys, that we didn't cover at all um, that you want to go through or other questions that are out there um, that, uh, that we didn't cover as far as open areas, things we're expecting, guidance, or questions we're getting from clients? Well, questions, maybe not answers, but <laughs> Ken, some of the so areas true. that we get a lot of questions on are around uh, cost-sharing arrangements, yeah. like when you're making a payment out of the U.S. as part of a cost-sharing arrangement, yeah. whether that be your um, buy-in amount, buy-in royalty, yeah. or whether that's the annual cost-sharing payment as to whether or not that would be subject to uh, to beat. And I think the other is, just going back to the applicable taxpayer questions, is just how broad does this apply? If, if you are um, a engaged in a trader business in the U.S., but that trader business is exempt because of income tax treaty, would you still sort of fall within the beat requirements here? Right. So it, it's it's interesting how many things are left open here, and you know, it causes us some pause as we go through this. I mean, I, I think you have to recognize from a policy standpoint that a lot of these rules, particularly in beat, came together pretty quickly from a standpoint of trying to figure out what they were going to do in the base erosion place. So it's not surprising to me there's a lot of questions out there, and I, I think we got to look to Treasury to try and help us resolve some of these from a guidance standpoint. Yeah. But I know you guys are inundated these days with questions coming in as it relates to, to the applicability of these things. Um, so the most common answer we're seeing here is uh, assessing supply and value chains given the changes in U.S. Ta international tax rules. So again, looking at the combination of all the rules that we've been talking about here on the tax reform readiness side and starting to figure out what that does from a business operating footprint. So makes sense. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like further information about this topic, please email the participants whose email addresses can be found in the description of this episode.